Take your Bible with me again and turn to the book of Hebrews as we continue our way through this wonderful journey. Hebrews chapter 3. Perhaps like some of you, I never had the privilege of meeting my maternal grandfather, but a piece of his legacy lives on through a piece of memorabilia that my mother gave to me some years ago. My grandfather was a military man. He was a career army man, and he was an expert marksman. He competed with the Army's pistol team and through that endeavor earned a series of medals, boxes and boxes of medals. And when my sweet grandmother passed away, my mom and her sisters went through their parents' belongings and my mom took some of those medals and created sort of a framed plaque with his picture in the middle and medals posted around it and gave one to my brother and myself. And those medals, of course, are a testimony to his skill as a marksman in the armed forces. In our culture, medals are a a symbol of lasting recognition. But when it comes to military medals, there is, of course, one medal that stands above the rest. It is the Medal of Honor. The Medal of Honor is only given to a select few soldiers who have demonstrated on the battlefield extreme courage and sacrifice determination. They've gone above and beyond the call of duty in some way, and that medal signifies that they are worthy of special honor. In fact, the word honor is, is described in the Oxford Dictionary as high respect or great esteem. So those who have received this medal then are those who the military says they're worthy of our high respect and their great esteem. Of course, in the military context, it's very helpful because through these medals and these recognitions, we know visibly who is worthy of such honors. But how do we determine whether or not someone is worthy of honor in other realms of life? In particular, how could we ever possibly know who it is that's worthy of more honor than any other person in in existence, in human history, or even in the universe? Well, thankfully, we don't have to look very far because the book of Hebrews is like that medal of honor, and it's pinned on one person, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. But the Lord Jesus Christ is superior to all others. And the author's not just told us this, but he continues over and over again to prove that there is no other that is superior to the Lord Jesus Christ. That, of course, is the theme of this wonderful letter, the superiority of Christ. And last week, we began looking at the fact that Jesus Christ is even superior to Moses. Even to Moses, that stalwart Old Testament figure, really in many ways the foundation of the faith of the people of Israel, at least the the ministry of God through that man, shaped an entire nation. And yet the author of Hebrews says that Jesus Christ is superior even to Moses. That is the theme of the six verses that we began looking at last week. Meditate on Jesus as the one greater than Moses. Let's read our text together again to refresh our memories. Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, down through verse 6. The author writes, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. 
For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Now, as I said last week, this really boils down to one primary argument. Here is the primary argument you see on the screen. Therefore, consider Jesus, for he's been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. And in verses 1 and 2, we were introduced to this command that really is the heart of these six verses, the command to set your mind on Jesus. Set your mind on Jesus. Now, you'll remember he gave us two descriptions of who we are and two descriptions of who Christ is. We, as God's people, are called holy brethren and those who have a shared calling. We're partakers in a heavenly calling. Jesus is described by his offices first as the apostle and high priest of our confession, and then secondly by his faithfulness. And you remember there in verse 2, that's where the author introduces us to this idea of a comparison between Moses and Jesus. He says that both of them were faithful. Jesus was faithful in God's house as Moses was faithful in God's house. Now, in order for us to move forward, it's important for us to begin where we left off last time. And you might remember at the end of the message last time, we looked at 11 different reasons, and this is a summary, there are more, but 11 reasons why the people of Israel had such high regard for Moses. I'm not going to belabor these, it was in last week's message, but I do want you to see them because we have to begin our message this morning with that exalted view of Moses, if we're to understand the importance of what the author says when he says that Christ is superior to Moses. I'm just going to read through these again, but we're going to focus on number 11. Remember his special calling as he was called by a pre-incarnate vision of Christ in the burning bush. Moses' representation of God before Pharaoh and all the plagues that came on Egypt. Moses' involvement in the parting of the Red Sea as the people passed through on dry land. His reception of the law and the covenant that would dictate the way of life and worship for the people of Israel. His personal vision of God as God showed him his back and declared his character to Moses. You remember his face shone with God's glory. He spent so much personal time in the actual presence of God, the people couldn't even look at him because his face was shining with the glory of God. His consecration of the tabernacle and the priests... His vindication over the sons of Korah as the earth swallowed them whole in the sight of all the people. His authorship, of course, of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, and his miraculous burial in Deuteronomy where it says that God himself buried Moses so that no man knew where he was buried. But as I mentioned last week, there's one particular passage that the author of Hebrews has in mind as he teaches us here in this passage And it comes from Numbers chapter 12, specifically verse 7. And this is the 11th uh, instance when we see the exaltation of Moses, his vindication over Miriam and Aaron, his siblings. But remember Numbers 12, 
Let's read verses 6 to 8. This is God speaking. He said, Hear now my words. If there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak to him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. That's the line that's quoted here in Hebrews. Verse 8. With him I speak mouth to mouth, even openly, and not in dark sayings. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant, against Moses? You see this distinction between Moses and every other prophet besides him. He says, with other prophets, I speak to them in dreams, maybe in visions. With Moses, I speak to him mouth to mouth or face to face. And not in dark sayings or riddles, I speak plainly to him. He separates Moses as the premier servant of God. In fact, he is the premier servant of God up until the point of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is why we have this shocking command to consider Jesus. And that's exactly what we're going to do. Now, before we get to the reason why we're to consider Jesus in this way, let me just quickly explain the structure of the author's argument for the rest of these verses so that we don't get confused, and then we'll dive into this reason for the command. Last week we saw the command. Today we'll see the reason for that command. And then in weeks to come, we're going to open up these arguments that he makes proving this command. In fact, he has two arguments, and each of those arguments have two illustrations. So there are four total statements that he makes to prove this command and the reason for the command, and we will look at those together. Today, we're just going to look at the reason for the command and introduce the first of those arguments. Now, with that in mind, here is the reason. The reason for this command to consider Jesus is because Jesus is superior to Moses. Let's look back at our text together, verse 3, 4. He has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Now remember that this statement goes directly with our command, though there were some modifying statements in the middle. This is a, a direct correlation to that command to consider Jesus. Why? Because he's been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Last week we saw a comparison, a positive comparison between the faithfulness of Jesus and the faithfulness of Moses. But today, we see a contrast. We see how the two are dramatically different. And while this contrast would be significant for us today, it will be significant, just imagine how astonishing this contrast must have been for a Jewish person hearing this at that time. For all the reasons we mentioned earlier and many, many more, Moses was the most highly esteemed person in the history of Israel. And yet here, the author says unashamedly, boldly, clearly, that in comparison to Jesus Christ, Moses is really far down the list, that Jesus is counted of more honor or glory than Moses. Now, in this context, the word glory here really indicates honor. 
And we see that because of the next argument that he makes. Look at at the second half of verse 3. He says, By just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. As he begins to explain what he means, he's going to switch to the word honor. So here, in this context, the word glory is not necessarily talking about the outward manifestation, the, the brilliant light of God, but based upon his intrinsic worth and attributes but rather the fact that Jesus is worthy of more honor than Moses. The key to understanding this, as I've said, is to rightly understand the exaltation of Moses. The author does not take the the approach of trying to cut down Moses to say, you've all been thinking wrongly about Moses. No, he says, you're exactly right about Moses. He was faithful in God's house. You should have a high opinion of Moses, but Jesus is better. Jesus is higher. He is more glorious and worthy of more honor. But the question, of course, that comes to mind with a statement like this is who is making this assessment and saying that Jesus is to be counted as more, with more honor than Moses? Who's doing this? Who's saying this? It's not the author. It's not the author giving his own assessment, although he agrees with it, obviously. But he's saying that Someone else has counted Jesus as more worthy of honor. In context, it can only be God the Father. You remember last week, it was God the Father behind the scenes of these verses who appointed Moses and appointed Jesus to their specific offices, their roles. And it's God who had the assessment, made the assessment, that they were both faithful in those roles. And so here, it must be God the Father who after looking at the faithfulness of Moses and the faithfulness of Jesus, has said that it's Jesus who's to be counted worthy of more honor. That verb there, has been counted worthy, is in the perfect tense. We've talked about this before, but that's an important tense to understand when it comes to the Greek language because the perfect tense is used for an action in the past, a one-time action, that has ongoing ramifications for the future. Think of the, the, the underwater volcanic eruption that happened early in, in January in the Tonga region. That eruption happened in one place at a moment in time, but the effects of it went far beyond just the location of that volcano. In fact, the people around that area are still feeling the effects of that volcano and the tsunami that took place after it. That's the idea here. It's one statement. At one point in time, God declared Jesus is to be counted worthy of more honor than Moses, but we're still feeling the effects of that. And for all eternity, we will feel the ramifications of that truth that he is to be exalted above all else. But I don't want you this morning just to take my word for it, just because I said so. I want you to see that the Bible clearly testifies to the fact that the Father verbalizes this truth, that his perfect Son, Jesus Christ, is to be not only exalted, but specifically to be exalted even above Moses. I want you and I this morning to to feel the ripple effects of this great event. And to do that, the best way I know how is to take one illustration from the life of Moses and another illustration from the ministry of Christ and to put them side by side. And I believe when we do that, we will understand the the background behind such a statement as this in Hebrews. And so we're going to look at one scene from the life of Moses and one scene from the life of Christ. 
The first scene I've entitled God's Undeniable Affirmation of Moses. God's Undeniable Affirmation of Moses. Now we know that God chose Moses and called him into service personally in Exodus 3 and 4 through the burning bush encounter. But that was a private discussion. That was just between God and Moses. Now you put yourself in the shoes of God. How could you visibly demonstrate to the entire nation of the Hebrew people that Moses was your mouthpiece, that he and he alone was chosen to be your prophet? How would you do that? Well, obviously, we know he did it in many, many, many ways over and over again. But there's one key crucial moment in which God gathers the people of Israel, all of them, to show them that Moses and Moses alone is his chosen messenger. And it comes to us in Exodus 19 and 20. Exodus 19 and 20. I've picked just portions of this to summarize the the events, but I would encourage you to go and read the entirety of Exodus 19 and 20 later. Now this begins in Exodus 19 verse 9. Listen to this. The Lord said to Moses, this is, by the way, they're out of Egypt. They're just entering into the wilderness. They're about to start their pilgrimage across the wilderness. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will come to you in a thick cloud so that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe in you forever. Then Moses told the words of the the people to the Lord. Now, listen to that. That's that's significant. He says, I'm going to speak so they can all hear me speaking to you. He's not going to tell Moses things that he hasn't already said to Moses. He's not saying it for Moses' benefit. He says, I'm going to speak to you in their hearing for their benefit. Why? So that they also will believe in you, Moses, forever. Why is that significant? Because Moses and Moses alone was chosen by God to be the mouthpiece for God, the prophet to the people, the mediator between God and the people. And God wants the people to know that clearly. So how's he going to do that? Exodus 19, verse 18. We're going to skip down to verse 18. Now, Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. Now, I think that would get your attention, right? If you see this scene, a mountain quaking violently on fire with the glory of God, I think that would get the people's attention. Verse 19, when the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, so there's a trumpeteer somewhere up on the mountain. uh, It's God, a divine trumpet is being sounded. Moses spoke and God answered him with thunder. Now just picture this, all the people of Israel are gathered at the foot of Mount Sinai, watching and hearing all of this take place. Verse 20, the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Notice he called Moses and only Moses, and Moses goes up alone. Verse 21, then the Lord spoke to Moses, go down, warn the people so that they do not break through to the Lord to gaze, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, or else the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you warned us, saying, Set bounds about the mountain and consecrate it. Then the Lord said to him, Go down and come up again, you and Aaron with you, but do not let the priest and the people break through to come up to the Lord, or he will break forth upon them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. 
Uh, you remember that Aaron was given the role of being sort of the mouth, mouthpiece for Moses. Moses would go into the very presence of God and then give that revelation to Aaron, who would then speak on Moses' behalf. And so for this scene, Aaron is brought with him. But clearly, God has set Moses apart in front of the entire nation so that everyone will know that he and he alone is the mediator between God and the people. We know that they get this because of how they respond. Now, right after verse 25, we have the the, the giving of the Ten Commandments. God gives the Ten Commandments to Moses, and then we see this response of the people in Exodus 20, 18 to 21, and we'll end this scene here. All the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. Then they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but let not God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you and in order that the fear of him may remain with you so that you may not sin. So the people stood at a distance while Moses approached the thick cloud where God was. You see that picture. All the people standing off in the distance, one lone figure invited to go up the mountain, and it's Moses. I think the message got across. I don't think the Lord could have chosen a more obvious, visible demonstration for the people to know that Moses was his chosen man. Now, There are many reasons why the people respected Moses, but this is sort of the the commissioning moment, the, the, the foundation of their understanding that he and he alone is chosen by God. Moses, of course, then writes the five books of the first five books of the Bible. We still have those in our Bible. We still stand upon that foundation today. But that brings us to a scene in the life of Christ that fits nicely up against the scene that we just saw in Exodus 19 and 20. And this scene is God's undeniable affirmation of Jesus. And I want you to see some of the similarities and some of the differences between this moment in the life of Christ and the moment we just saw in the ministry of Moses. Here, this is in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 17. Matthew 17. Matthew 17, beginning in verse 1 says this, six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. Now, we're going to pause right there for a moment. First of all, notice that this scene, too, takes place on a high mountain. But Peter, James, and John are given a private viewing of this moment. The world will see the exaltation of Christ soon through the resurrection. But here, Peter, James, and John are given this private, special moment. And it says that once they got there, Jesus was transfigured before them. That's not a word we use often, transfigured. That is, his outward appearance was physically changed Picture it this way. It's as if for a moment he pulled back the veil of his human flesh and allowed these three men to see his glory, to see the true glorious nature of the Lord Jesus Christ, the glory that was rightfully his before the foundation of the world and that is rightfully his even now. The the result of that is that the face of Jesus was shining like the sun. Now just picture this. 
this bright face of Jesus shining, and his clothes began to, to glow with a, a white color. Suddenly, Peter, James, and John are given the privilege to see the glory of Christ. But then, in addition to that, two other men appear, Moses and Elijah. Now, it's not an accident that out of all the heroes of the faith, God chose Moses and Elijah to be a part of this moment. Moses, as we just saw, was God's undisputed chosen messenger through whom the law of God came. And Elijah was one of the most exalted prophets in all of the Old Testament. You remember, not only did he do miraculous things by God's power, like calling down fire on Mount Carmel, uh, but he also never died. Elijah was taken to heaven by God. This man was used in miraculous ways and was held in the highest of esteem by the Jewish people. We could say the two most important or most exalted figures in all of the Old Testament are standing here with Jesus. You also might remember that when the, when the Jews talked about the Old Testament in summary form, what did they say? Moses and the prophets, right? Moses and the prophets was a summary for the entire Old Testament. What do we have here? Moses and one of the premier prophets of God. So we have not only a, a, a symbol of the working of God throughout history, we have a symbol of God's revelation to man throughout history. And here they are talking to Jesus. Now, with that explanation, let's keep reading in verse 4. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Now, per usual, Peter's the first of the men to speak up in response, right? Peter just can't help himself. He has to say something, and so he speaks up, and he says, This is great this is amazing that we're able to see this and that we're here. Here are the, the three premier men in God's plan of redemption. We've got Moses that gave us the law. We've got Elisha, the, the premier prophet, and we have the Messiah. We, we have what God's doing now in, the, in, in the, the, the revelation to his people. And so what Moses proposes then is let's build three tabernacles to, to honor all three of these exalted men. Now, that was well-meaning, but it proves that Peter missed the point entirely. And we know that because God doesn't even wait for Peter to finish his sentence. But he interrupts him and speaks over Peter. And he says, let me tell you what this symbol means. Listen to what God says. Verse 5, while he was still speaking, that's Peter. A bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. You understand the significance of that? That, that, that word, this, is this one, literally. That is, apart from the other two, this one, Jesus He is my beloved son. 
Now, as Peter's talking, the the glory cloud of God comes down on this mountaintop. The same glory cloud that was there in Exodus 19, the same glory cloud that would lead the people through the wilderness, the same glory cloud that would overshadow the, the, the tabernacle and later the temple. This is the visible representation of the presence of God. And God the Father gives them this, this visible representation and then speaks from the cloud. This one and only this one is my beloved son. Not servant, son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. God the Father says, Peter, you've missed the point. I've not brought Moses and Elijah here to show you that Jesus is on par with Moses and Elijah. I've brought them here so that you would understand that he is exalted even above them. God doesn't even reference Moses and Elijah. When Jesus is in the room, everyone else fades away. And he says, this one is my son. Listen to him. He says he's well pleased with Jesus. That's to take pleasure or find satisfaction in. It is to take delight. It's my one and only son with whom I take delight. He's expressing this highest, greatest delight in Jesus as opposed to even Moses and Elijah. And that phrase from the mouth of God the Father culminates with this command. It's a command. Listen to him. When you take that and you compare that to Exodus 19, whom the people were also to listen to Moses, and then you see that Moses is standing there and God singles out Jesus and says, listen to him. He exalts Jesus above even Moses and even Elijah. That command, listen to him, is more than just open your ears and hear his words. It means obey him, submit to him. What he says, you must do. When the disciples heard this, verse 6, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. In summary version, it's exactly what the people of Israel did on that day when God revealed himself there on Mount Sinai. And yet here we see God in human flesh, Jesus Christ, superior to all. You see, the author of Hebrews has put all this together. He's put these pieces together for us, and it's on the basis of things like this passage that he says to us with such clarity and such conviction that we're to consider Jesus, for he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Now you understand the impact that these words are to have. Now I pray that you can not only hear it and know it, but feel it, feel the weight of what this statement means. And I hope you understand that we must take time to consider Jesus. We cannot neglect the extreme privilege that we have of knowing the Lord Jesus Christ, the one worthy above all else, And to do that properly, we have to understand that considering Jesus is more than just thoughtful meditation. Certainly, that's one of the applications. We ought to meditate on him. We ought to dwell on Jesus and dwell on the scriptures. But it's more than that. Because he says here that Jesus is worthy of the highest honor. How do we honor Jesus? 
obedience. It's not just to think on him, but to follow him, to submit to his words. It is to take the command of God the Father to Peter, James, and John and apply it to ourselves. Listen to him. If you honor him, if you say you honor him, listen to him. Obey him. The truth is the unbelieving world around us is very willing to consider Jesus cognitively and intellectually. Perhaps you're here this morning and you wouldn't necessarily call yourself a Christian, but you are intrigued by Jesus. Understand that most of the world religions include some kind of consideration of Jesus. Muslims, for example, believe that Jesus was a prophet and a good man. Even those who claim to have no religion but believe that Jesus was a historical figure often believe he was a good guy. Perhaps there are some moralistic things that we could take from his life. But none of those reach the level of consideration that's called for here. They fall woefully short of what this text is teaching because the author of Hebrews says he's worthy of the highest honor in our consideration. That is, that we are to believe and follow him and his words. Considering Jesus worthy of honor means that we bow our knee to Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, understand that the first thing for you, the first application of this command to consider Jesus is to come to him understanding that you are a sinner who has rebelled against him. No matter how much the world wants to tell you that you're a good person, who's just done a couple of bad things, I'm sorry to tell you that's just not true. The Bible tells you the truth about who you are and who I am, and that is we are sinners to the core. And what we rightly deserve, if God gave us what we deserve, is his judgment forever in hell, separated from him. That's the blunt, honest truth. But the good news of Jesus Christ is that he came as the God-man lived the perfect life we should have lived and then offered his life freely on the cross as a sacrifice for sin, rising again from the grave on the third day. And the Bible says if you will put your faith in him, if you will repent of your sins, turning to Jesus in faith that he alone can save you, then you will be saved. To consider Jesus, you have to begin there. You have to believe what he said about himself. But if you're a believer this morning, we too have to consider Jesus. We have to obey the command, listen to him. And that means any time that the words of God in Scripture come into conflict with your feelings, desires, or beliefs, you must repent and adopt what God says is true in his word. That's what it means practically to listen to him. To consider Jesus in our daily lives is to run to him for comfort in times of trial. It's to run to him for help in the face of temptation. But it's also to submit our will and our desires to him in all things. That's what it is to consider Jesus as worthy of more honor even than Moses. To honor Jesus is to come to him asking that he conform us to his character rather than going to the scriptures and trying to conform them to our agenda. It means that when we come to difficult circumstances, we choose to trust in the character of the Lord Jesus. 
To honor him is to say, I don't understand my circumstances. They're truthfully not the circumstances I would have chosen for myself, but I believe in you. I trust your character. I trust your providence that this is best, even though I can't see it, and so I will follow you and I will cling to you. That's what it is to consider Jesus worthy of the highest honor, to worship him, to think highly of him, and to submit joyfully to him. And so with that description in mind, ask yourself, in what areas of my life do I need to more faithfully consider Jesus worthy of honor? Where have I put myself on the throne instead of Christ? Now that we understand the full weight of that command and how it is to apply to our hearts, we can now begin to move to his arguments to prove and to explain this great command. We're going to do that by just dipping our toe in the water this morning into his first argument of support. And what I need you to understand is that this first argument is not intended to prove the fact that Jesus is superior to Moses, but to demonstrate the degree to which He's superior to Moses. He first wants us to see the vast gulf between Moses and Jesus before he proves the fact. The fact will come in argument number two. So here's the first argument, the degree of Christ's superiority. The degree of his superiority. And he's going to give us two illustrations that make this point. We're only going to look at the first of those this morning. Illustration number one is a general truth. A general truth. Go back to verse 3. For he's been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. Now he begins with this conjunction that acts like a, a prepositional phrase. By just so much as. It's kind of an awkward translation. It's difficult, honestly, to translate that into English. But... Basically, the point is this. He means to the same degree as or in the same proportion as. So Jesus is worthy of more honor than Moses in the same proportion as this general truth he's going to give us. Okay, So this illustration is going to show us how much greater in degree the glory of Jesus is than Moses. And here's the statement. By just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. Now, many commentators are determined to find more in this phrase than I believe is warranted. I I don't think that we're supposed to try to figure out who the builder represents and who the house represents. I don't think that's the author's point. The author is just giving us a truism, a a statement of truth to help us understand this degree of, of vast separation between the glory of Moses and the glory of Jesus. So what's the explanation? He's simply telling us something that he believes all of us will agree with. He intends all of us to say yes and amen to this truth statement. And it's the fact that when a person builds a magnificent house, a magnificent structure, the glory of the house itself pales in comparison to the glory that goes to the person that made it. When you walk into a really uh, well-constructed home, you start to say, wow, that that's beautiful. Look at, the, look at the handiwork. Look at the, wood, the, the woodsman 
what's the word, Randy? You're a woodsman. What's the skill of the, I'm not a, I'm not a woodsman, but the, the craftsmanship. That's the word. Look at the craftsmanship. Look at that. Look at the intentionality of how that goes with this and this goes with that. I want to hire that person to build my house or to renovate my house. You see, the glory goes to the builder, not the house. It's not that we don't think the house is magnificent. It has a glory, but it pales in comparison to the glory of the builder. I can illustrate it this way. My wife and I used to really enjoy the show Fixer Upper. Now, some of you may have seen that show. Probably all of you have at least heard of that show. If you haven't, the premise of the show was this endearing husband and wife who buy rundown houses in Waco, Texas, and they turn them and flip them and make them something beautiful and magnificent for their customers so that at, at the end of the show, after all the joys and trials and hardships of remodeling a home, you see this beautiful end product. And as a part of the show, the, the, the host would always name the house they were going to renovate. He would give it some clever name that was based on something within that house. And at, at, after thinking on this all week long, I kept trying to think of just one name that they gave to just one of the houses that they renovated. Just one of the names. And full disclosure, I've seen every episode of Fixer Upper. <laughs> with my wife. With my wife. But guess how many names of houses I was able to recall? Zero. But if you ask me, who was the host of the show Fixer Upper? Chip and Joanna Gaines. I'd be able to tell you right off the top of my head. Why? Because the builder of the house has more glory than the house. It's Chip and Joanna Gaines that have built an empire off of this show, not the houses themselves. And that's the author's point here. So let's put it into the language of what the author is trying to tell us. What he's saying here through this truism, this true statement, is that the degree to which Jesus is worthy of honor is like the builder of the house versus Moses' honor, which is like the house itself. At the end of the day, the two are not even in the same category. That's the point. Though Moses' glory in this sense was truly great, at the end of the day, when it's compared to the glory and honor of Christ, he's just like one of those forgotten houses. Because that's how superior Jesus is. Christian, do you understand the immense privilege that you have to belong to Jesus Christ? To belong to the most exalted one in all the universe? the one worthy of most glory, not even Moses, not even Elijah, compare to him. And this truth has eternal ramifications. As I thought about that, my mind was drawn to the beautiful way that the Apostle Paul states this in Philippians chapter 2. Listen to this, Philippians 2, verses 9 to 11. For this reason also... God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The fact that the Father has counted Jesus as worthy of the most honor means that one day every single created being in the universe will make the confession that Jesus Christ 
and he alone is Lord. That includes every single person that's ever walked the face of the planet. It includes every spiritual being, every angel, every demon. Satan himself will have to make this pronouncement. And to be honest, it includes every single mouth in this room and every single knee. We will bow and we will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. You will either do that now, joyfully, embracing Jesus by grace through faith, or you will do it at the judgment, but your knee will bow and your tongue will confess because it has to. It will be obvious on that day to all that there is none who compares to Jesus. But what a privilege we have to bow our knee before him today, right now, in this moment, to confess, yes, Jesus Christ is Lord. And as we draw this to a close, it brings us to really the only way that we are to apply this. It's very simple. Honor Jesus. Honor Jesus. When we think of honoring Jesus, we've seen that it really breaks down into three actions. First of all, worship. If you want to honor Jesus, it means you've got to worship Jesus. Worship him in your thoughts. Worship him according to the way that he's revealed himself in Scripture. It means that we think on him as the divine son of God, the God-man worthy of all honor. It means we open our mouth and declare him to be who the Scriptures say he is. And we do it in word, we do it in song. Ever thought about that? Why do Christians sing? Why are we a singing people? Well, first of all, it's commanded as we studied in Colossians, but it's become, because it is commanded, it's become the way that God's people throughout history have united together. It's a way that we can express our our unity in Christ and together declare just how great he is. That's why we sing. He's worthy of our worship. But if we're going to honor Jesus, we have to understand it also means submission. He demands our submission. It means our repentance As we come to the word of God, we must agree with what it says, placing ourselves underneath its authority. So every time our thoughts, desires go out of alignment, we bring them back in with the scriptures. That's what submission is. And finally, that leads thirdly to obedience. Obedience. Once our hearts are his in worship and submission, It leads to real repentance, which leads to action. It shows up in how we live. If we're truly worshiping God, if we're truly living in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ, our feet will follow, not in perfection in this life, but certainly as the characterization of our lives. To honor Jesus means that we not only recognize where we're out of step with the word of God, but that we actually begin to walk in accordance with it. And so if you're in Christ this morning, let me ask you, consider the current state of your worship. Consider the current state of your submission. And consider the current state of your obedience. And the next time that the world, the flesh, or the devil tempts you to disregard the word of God for your own desires or feelings or thoughts, let the words of the Father In Matthew 17, come ringing into your ears, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. 
Listen to him. May that be our anthem. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, open our spiritual ears to hear, our spiritual eyes to see these truths for what they are, and help our feet by the power of the Spirit to obey, to walk in accordance with the truth, that we might be transformed more and more day by day into the image of Christ, that people can see him in us, hear his truth from our lips, see it overflowing in our affection for him, in our trust in the midst of hardship, and our willingness to lay down our preferences for the truth of Scripture and for his people. God, help us to honor Jesus, not just in thought, not just in word, but in deed. We pray, God, that we would be a people who give our hearts to you, because that is what you desire. Let us not be a people who honor you with our lips, whose hearts are far from you, but may our hearts be conformed to the truth. Thank you for such clear truth in the scriptures, unambiguous. Help us now to walk according to it. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.